Uh, tonight, we're going to go through, um, as, as advertised, we know that this coming Sunday, this coming Friday is Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. And it's a very special day, of course, in that, you know, for 2,000 years, the Jewish people were praying to have the ability to be in Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, to be in the Holy City. We are fortunate today, I'm sure most of us on this uh, chat, on the Zoom call, and a lot of people watching would have had the merit, the schut, to go to Israel. For those of you who haven't been, who were supposed to go, I know this year is not a hasn't been a good example to be able to travel to Israel. I know I'm supposed to be going twice this year. The first one's already been canceled, and it looks like the next one will also probably be canceled in uh, November time. But Baruch Hashem, thank God we've had the ability to be in Yerushalayim, to walk through the streets, to pray at the Kotel, to see the incredible learning that's been happening in Israel, to see the, uh, the restoration of our people um, in, in the Holy Land. And of course, Yom Yerushalayim celebrates the modern-day miracle that we were given the ability to have access and control over Yerushalayim. So it's a wonderful time to celebrate. And of course, it's something which we, we have to pray that whilst we enjoy this luxury of having Yerushalayim, we know that every couple that stands under the chuppah, we know that they uh, dedicated part of their ceremony to breaking the glass under the chuppah. Because as great a great of joy that we have um, in the ability that we have Israel, and we have the Holy Land, and we have the Holy City of Yerushalayim, our joy is not complete until we have the restoration of the Beit HaMikdash, Ashlishi, the third Beit HaMikdash, and please God, that will be soon. So today's shiur, I wanted to address something which, of course, will give us some insight. And I think some spiritual, emotional, and I guess even some intellectual concepts about Yerushalayim, in the sense we want to look at the name. You know, in Judaism, names are very crucial. The name that anything has is often describing the essence. You can, you know, there's a whole safer and many books that have been written, you know, you can go through the name of every single parasha, and you can see that the name's not just random, you know, because if it was just the first word of a parasha, you see that that's not consistent. So clearly when the sages selected the name of each parasha, it shows you deep insight into the message or the theme or the, or the, the soul of each single portion. The same thing with the, our names, our Yiddish names. If you have a Jewish name, um, a lot of the Kabbalists speak about that when you receive that name, in particular, if you received it as a girl, when you received it, when, when, you, when your, your father or someone in, 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 in that stead, uh, the guardian got called up to the Torah or for a boy when you had your Brit, um, when the parents say that name, it almost gives them, uh, Hashem gives them almost this divine inspiration, this Ruach HaKodesh, because they say that the name that you have, your Yiddish name, actually touches or taps into your Neshama. It's got some connection to who you are as a person. That's why it's very important to choose a name that is befitting and not to choose the name of a wicked person. Uh, although I have met someone, I, I remember I was in Israel a few years back, and I believe there was a Jewish guy, their parents named him Haman. So why they named him Haman, I don't know. But uh, it's not recommended to, to give the name of a, a wicked person or somebody who doesn't have a good reputation um, in biblical history. And so therefore, we have to assume that the fact that we call this great city, and, you know, Jerusalem and Israel, it's a lot more than the falafel and the shawarma. You know, a lot of people come back from Israel and say, oh, we loved it. We could sit on the beaches. We could have shawarma. We could have falafel, Israeli culture and dancing. And you say, that's wonderful. But that's not distinct to the Jewish community. That's not distinct to a Yid. There's lots of cultures. You can go to Italy and enjoy their food. You can go to Greece and you can enjoy their food. You can go to Australia. There needs to be something deeper in terms of Israel. And, of course, we could do a whole shiur on, on the holiness of this, the land of Israel. I remember before, you know, I, my first time in Israel was in the year 2000. I'm sure some people watching 
were there way before I arrived in Israel, you know, have been in times uh, earlier than that. But I remember even when I landed, we went through um, Olympic Airways. I don't know if anybody ever heard of Olympic Airways. It's the Greek airline. So we got a very good deal with Olympic Airways. And I remember when we landed in Israel, you, there was actually, you didn't connect to the gate. So it didn't have the direct uh, attachment to the gate. It landed, you know, 10 minutes or five minute walk from the gate. So you actually have to walk down the steps and then walk uh, to, to the actual, uh, you know, um, arrivals place. But I remember as we got on the ground, people, people, you know, kneeled down and kissed the ground. They said, ah, we've now touched holy earth. And I was watching this and observing this and I did the same thing. And I recognize, you know, that there's something special. And of course, it might just be that we, because we're Jewish, we have a connection. But if you look at this, at the incredible spiritual teachings and writings, the Kabbalah, about the holiness of the land, that even the earth, even the very soil that you walk on in the land of Israel has, has, has Hashem's blessing. It's an incredible thing. And therefore, if you're Shalim, which is the place where the holy temple stood, it must be that there's a message in the name. That the name itself is coming to teach you and I what it is that Judaism is trying to teach the world. What, are, what is the outlook? What is the, the purpose of, we, of us as a Jewish nation? And because, of course, if you look at it, and yes, we're biased a bit because we are Jewish. But if you look at Jerusalem and Israel in general, at the center of the world, it's, it's supposed to be the beacon of light. We're supposed to be a light unto the nations. And it's a very, very high calling, you know, um, the amazing thing is that a lot of people, and I, I am digressing slightly, but a lot of people say, you know, how can you call yourselves the chosen nation? It's very arrogant, and perhaps it's been, some people may have claimed it's been the, the reason for anti-Semitism in many cases. But the truth is, it's not a closed club. Anybody can become Jewish. Anybody can convert. Yes, there's a process. It's not always that easy. But the bottom line is, if you want to be Jewish, if you're not just born Jewish, but you want to be a, a Jewish, it's saying that you're going to have to behave in a very... Uh, in, you know, in a very moral way to teach the world around us. Now, sadly, when people don't behave in, in the way they're supposed to, and especially when Israel does things which are not necessarily uh, the best, uh, the best things that they could be doing, we know that they judge very harshly. They judge very, very, with a very uh, sharp, you know, judgment. And because I think we, as a, as a community, need to really step up and and understand that, you know, having that responsibility, having that privilege as well, is. is is a very, very, very important part of who we are as Jews. And therefore, of course, Yerushalayim, the holy city of Jerusalem, is certainly the one we have to look at. So in order to understand the name Yerushalayim, in order to understand the concept of Yerushalayim, we're going to have to take a little bit of, of a detour. We're going to look at a number of different things. And the way we're going to understand it is actually going back to two of the, I guess, one of the two of the most iconic early characters in, in Tanakh. Who are these two characters? The first is Noah. Right? So although it's not Parashat Noach or Parashat Lech Lecha, we, we're already just starting this week, Parashat Bamidbar. But in order to understand Yerushalayim, in order to understand Jerusalem, it's often important to understand the people that are, I guess, chosen in a sense by Hashem to represent something. And so therefore, we're going to look at two Jews, or one Jew and one you know, other famous biblical character, because Noach was not, in fact, Jewish. But Avram and Noach, we're going to see that there's a, there's a very different paradigm in both of their lives. And in order to understand Yerushalayim, we're going to have to understand the difference between Noah and Avraham and how Hashem viewed each of them and their particular role and mission in this world. So what do we know about Noah? Noah, we know, it says that Noah was Ish Sadiq. He was a righteous person. Tamim Hayab He was complete in his generation. 
right? So the Torah tells us that he was a righteous man. But the thing is, although it calls him a tzaddik, he was not selected to be the first Jew, right? It wasn't like Hashem came to him and said, Noah, thank you very much. You are going to be prototype Jews. No, Noah was not given that title. Although he, in a sense, he saved the world, literally. You know, he built the ark and, you know, he saved humanity. Why was he not given the opportunity to be called the first Jew? What did he do that was wrong? What did he do that was not the exact message that we want uh, all of us to be living our lives in the sense that we emulate Noah's way versus Abraham's way? So the interesting thing is the, the Torah is very nuanced. If you look at every single word in the Torah, it's not like, a, you know, a, a, a romance novel or a book, you know, encyclopedia. Each letter, each word is so specific in that, you know, I've given Shirin before where we've even looked at the musical note. You know, when you lay in the Torah, when you read the Torah, you have to read it with musical cantillations. Each word, each word has a specific sound. And you can actually look at this particular sounds can actually teach you a lot about the content. So if, you, if you're analyzing every single musical note, how much more so every single word, every single letter. And so therefore, when the Torah says that Noah was righteous, in his generation, one has to wonder, what does it mean in his generation? So herein you have a very interesting argument in that Rashi, who's the foremost commentator of the Torah. Rashi comments on everything. I once heard a cute joke that uh, Rashi and his wife were going out for a dinner party and Rashi's wife came downstairs and Rashi said, oh, I don't like the dress you're wearing. And she said, Rashi, you have to comment on everything, right? Now you have to comment on everything that I, you, you, can, uh, you can keep your comments to the Torah. But anyway, Rashi was someone who... Um, as we know, comments throughout the Torah and in the Talmud, without his commentary, we would be lost with a lot of the interpretation. But it says there that, that Noah, we looked at two ways. One is that it was saying that he was so righteous that even if he lived in the generation of Abraham, he would be considered righteous. But the next commentary says, no, on the contrary, it wasn't that he was so righteous it's just that he was a, he was amongst you know the riffraff he was amongst the very uh you know degraded society a society which was depraved they were they were obviously deserved destruction and so when you when you're a little bit good amongst rotten apples you look good so noah wasn't necessarily on the level of an abraham but in his particular time perhaps he shone amongst the you know amongst the thorns you know the, the rose amongst the thorns and so therefore the torah is saying that it could go either way either he was exceptionally righteous or he was righteous, but only in his particular generation. But the obvious question is, if you have a way to interpret it in a positive light, why then do we have to bring this other interpretation? Why do we say that he wasn't necessarily righteous if he was amongst a whole room of righteous people? We know there's a famous um, Talmudic approach, which is called Dan Likavsfut. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. Dan Likavsfut means you need to judge favorably. It's probably one of the hardest human values to live up to you know most of us when we judge somebody when we see somebody we're judging unfavorably or we're making we're making judgment calls based on the periphery based on what we see on the in the immediate sense you know if you see somebody behaving a certain way you already make a decision this is how the person is or this is who the person is and then unfortunately when you start to get a bit of the context you say oh i rushed to judgment so danica's foot means always try and go on the side of of of, of favor so you know what Perhaps there's a reason why the person did this. And it's, as I said, it's not a very easy uh, way to live because I say that sometimes the human nature of our existence is to be on the side of caution. You know, the you know we, we, we often want to protect ourselves. We want to put walls up. And the, 
the best way to put up walls is to really make these uh, judgments which, which bring caution. But the Torah is saying to act differently. So why would Rashi, who is the foremost commentator, why would he bring, if you're supposed to judge favorably, why bring the second interpretation, which can look at Noach in a negative light? It can say, look, Noach was righteous, but not that righteous, mate. You know, he's amongst uh, you know, these terrible people living in the, his generation. He looked good. But if he came around, you know, the generation of Avram, he wouldn't look so good. So how do we understand this? Why would Rashi bring it? So the truth of the matter is, once we understand that, the difference between Avram and Noach, we're going to see that that difference between the two characters is in fact the secret behind the name of Yerushalayim. So let's start. So there's a very famous Midrash in, uh, called Bereshit Rabbah. Bereshit Rabbah there tells us a very interesting story. You know, the, the Midrash often gives us behind the scenes what's not written in the black and white of the Torah. It gives us, you know, what, what we didn't see with our, with our eyes in a sense. It's, it's some of this thing that happened behind the scenes. So it says that Avraham, Abraham, how did the name Yerushalayim come? Who gave it the name? Obviously, we, we kind of an open discussion here. But if you weren't aware of it, the Midrash here tells us how the name Yerushalayim got its name. It wasn't chosen by, you know, the first council in, uh, of Zionism in, you know, in the 1800s. It wasn't decided in 1948. We're going to give the name Jerusalem this name. It was given back, says the Talmud and the Midrash, that Avram called the city of Yerushalayim, before it had its first name, he called it Yerah'eh. So Jerusalem had a name before it was called Yerushalayim, it was called Yerah'eh. Why? Because it says that Avram called the place Hashem will see, which means Yerah'eh, here Hashem will see, which means on this mountain, here where the Beisamikas will be built, this is where Hashem will be seen. Then what happened is, another person by the name of Shem, right? We are Semites, right? We come from the the lineage of Shem, you know, that Noah had three sons, Shem, Cham, and Yafet. So we come from the lineage of Shem. And it says that Shem also gave it the name. And what did he call the city? He called it Shalem. So Avram called it Yerah, and uh, Shem called it Shalem. Why? And he, it says in the Pasuk that Malkitzedek, the king of Shalem, Melech Shalem. What did, was Shalem? It was Yerushalayim. It was the city. All right, so you've got Avram calling it Yerah, and you've got Shem calling it Shalem. So which one do you go with? So who, who, who else can make, who can choose between the two? How do you decide? You were given a choice. So in this one, they needed God. God said, I'll come and decide. So it said, said Hashem, listen to this. Even Hashem is very sensitive. You know, you think God, he doesn't mind, but God himself is also very sensitive. He said, if I call it Yira, which is Yira, the same source as Yira or Yeru, as Avram called it, who's going to be upset? Shem. Shem, who's a holy man, he'll object. And if I call it Shalem, what's going to happen? Avram, who's a holy man, he will object. So what should I do? Here comes God. If you want to understand, if you ever have to deal with a conflict, listen to what Hashem did. Hashem said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take both names and I'll put them together. Shkoyach. Brilliant uh, resolution. And Hashem says, I'll name it Yerushalayim, combining the name of Yira or Yeru and Shalem and Baruch Hashem, the city of Yerushalayim got its name. Very fascinating, very strange Midrash, if I say so myself. You know, why would Avram get upset? Why would Shalem get Why would Shem get upset? These were holy people. Why would Avram want one way? Why did Shem want another way? And of course, understanding the difference between what their name, remember we said in the beginning, that when you give a name to something, it depicts the essence of that thing. 
it must be that the way Avram saw the city and the way Shem, of course, who was who was Shem, he was the son of Noah. So obviously, he was educated in the in the same way that Noah was educated, because that was his father. So clearly, there's going to be something that these two names, Yera or Yeru and Shalem, they have um, going for themselves. I just uh, I was just reminding myself when I was talking about you know when you have a, a conflict of how to resolve two situations. I've had it a number of times, you know, especially when it comes to naming a child. I've had parents. You know, let's say I have couples that I've married and they come back a few years later and they have a child. They want to know how should they name the child? You know, he wants to name it this way and she wants to name the child that way. How do you find compromise? And I've often said, why don't you give it two names? Give it the name that you want and the name that you want. And they go, oh, Rabbi, that is one that is brilliant. And I said, yeah, look, comes with the territory. Rabbis are brilliant, but I'm just emulating Hashem. Hashem, when there was two names that had to be given, what did Hashem do? He picked both but it but it reminded me of the famous story of the the parents who came to the rabbi at about two o'clock in the morning and knocked on his door and they said to the rabbi um the rabbi opened up he said look can i help you it's two o'clock in the morning he said rabbi look we have a very urgent very very urgent question this today at eight o'clock in the morning it's the bris of our son and we've been up all night fighting about how we're going to name this child Rabbi sits him down and he's studying. He says, look, tell me, tell me the issue. So the husband starts out and he says, look, I want to name him after my Zayda, after my father, sorry, after this uh, child's Zayda. Um, and she wants to name him after her father. So Rabbi says, okay, it's a, it's a very common issue. What's the name? So the, the, the husband says, my father's name was Moshe and her father's name was also Moshe. So the rabbi said, well, it's a very complex question. Let me go think about it. He said, okay, Rabbi, thank you very much. Rabbi comes back a few minutes later. He says, I've thought about it for long and hard. And I want to understand, why do you want to name him Moshe? So the father says, I want to name him Moshe because my father, of course, was Moshe. And she wants to help her father. And she interjects. She says, look, your father Moshe was a gunner. He was a thief. He was a lowlife. He wasn't respected in the community. My father, says the wife, was an honorable man. He was a learned man. He was a respected man. And so the rabbi says, look, I've, I've thought it through long and hard, and I've decided we're going to name him Moshe. The couple looks at the rabbi, and they say, oh, but very good rabbi, but who's he named after, my father or her father? The rabbi says, I'll tell you what. If he grows up and he becomes a gunner and a thief and he's disrespectful, then he's named after the, your husband's father. If he's a righteous, honest, caring man, then he'll be named after the wife's father. And, of course, the rabbi had resolved the question. But anyway... It's hard to see if anybody is even laughing at my jokes. Anyway, <laughs> all right. So we obviously need to understand the difference between Noah and Avraham. And by understanding the difference, we can obviously understand why Hashem had this conflict between the two. And of course, why he combined these names. And then hopefully the lesson for each of us that we can take away from the Shi'ur. So what did Noah do? What was his fame, if you like? If you had to take any child out of uh, Talmud Torah, if you had to take any Jewish uh, child out of a Jewish day school or any child who's going to an after school program and studied with, with a rabbi, with a teacher, they'll tell you that Noah was the person who built the ark and Avraham was the person who was the first Jew. Two very famous parts of their lives. Um, and the question is, uh, as we asked in the beginning, why was Avraham chosen versus Noah um, and what, what happened? So in order to understand this, there's a very famous Zohar. And when I say famous, it's only famous because I've read it before. But it's famous in the sense that it, that it, it brings a lot of meaning behind it. The Zohar tells us in Parashat Noah, it says that once Hashem told Noah that he and his family 
we're going to be saved. The Zohar says he did not pray for the rest of the world, right? And this is why it says that the, if, you, if, you, if you look at it in different parts of, of Torah literature, it often refers to the flood as May Noah, the waters of Noah, almost like, you know, like Trump is calling it the, the, the Chinese virus, you know, it's named after China. So this was like, it was quite derogatory. Imagine you lived through the flood or you heard about it and you said, ah, the flood of Noah, right? It's, 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 it's like, what, what was Noah's fault? Did he have, did he, did, was he a cause for the flood? He was the man who saved. It should be called the savior of Noah. And so it says over there that uh, they did say it was his flood. And the Zohar said, why did it get his name? Because he shares, in a sense, the guilt. Because he didn't pray for the people aside for his family. Which was different to, of course, you know, later generations. Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses, when Hashem said he was going to destroy the Jewish people, what did Moses say? You destroy them, you take me out of your book. And Moshe prayed for the Jewish people. So Noah, we can already see, why didn't he pray for them, right? If he was a righteous person, why not pray for them? And so there needs to be some insight into his psyche, right? We need to understand Noah. And perhaps there are parts of us at times which are this very Noah, as we'll see. So what was the reason Noah didn't pray for the Jewish people? What, did he, what, what was his reasoning? So the Zohar continues and says that Rabbi Huda said, what could Noah have done? And it says, Noah was scared for himself. And he wouldn't perish. He wouldn't die with the rest of the world around him. And so what they're suggesting over here is that Noah was scared. What was he scared of? What was he worried about? What was he afraid of? What was the, the insight that the Zohar is telling us that Noah, number one, didn't pray for the Jewish people or for the people, sorry, not the Jewish people, but for the people of the flood. And number two, why is it that Noah was scared? What was he scared about? So if you have problem concentrating or being focused on one issue for too long, it's not a problem because we're about to digress for another moment. We're about to tie this into a very fascinating halakha. Now, although we're not coming up to Hanukkah, we, we're going up to Shavuot, there's a very interesting mitzvah and halakha when it comes to the mitzvah of Hanukkah. And this will actually tell us, again, giving, giving us insight into who Noah was. So just to recap, in case you, you've lost me, we want to understand where the name Yerushalayim comes from. We spoke about an interesting midrash which said that the name Yerushalayim came from Avram giving it its first name called Yeru or Yeru'a'e and Noach giving it the name Shalem. And then we wanted to ask why was Noach not in fact chosen as the first Jew? And we said because Noach himself was not necessarily righteous amongst his, uh, uh, the, the righteous people only in his generation which was a very evil generation. And therefore there was something not right about Noach. And we said, what was not right about him? And we started to uncover somewhat. That number one, he didn't pray for the people around him. And number two, he was scared. So once we understand who Noah was and what his error was, then we'll be able to go back to the original question is what happened with the naming? Why did Avram give it one part and Noah's generation or Noah's uh, uh, offspring give it another name? And why Hashem combined them? Because of course, Noah, the fact that we do call him a tzaddik must be that there is some merit that we need from Noah as well. And in order to understand this, we can look at one more subject, and that is when it comes to the mitzvah of Hanukkah. Now, for all of us who live in a place like Australia, and I don't know where other people might be watching on Facebook, but in Australia, we're very lucky. It's very free. We can go light our Hanukkah outside. There's, you know, Hanukkahs in the, the malls, the shopping towns outside, in public parks. It's wonderful. 
And we know that every mitzvah, it says in Halafah, it says in the Gemara, in Talmud of Shabbat, it says that we should have the Chanukiah facing outside. If you live on the second floor, it says you should put it on the window in order that the public can see it, right? Because the mitzvah is to be mefarsem, to publish and to publicize the mitzvah, to publicize the miracle of Chanukah. But then the Gemara says there's a caveat to this. If it is at a time when it's a dangerous time for the Jewish people, and unfortunately we know that all too well, where we don't have the freedom to express our faith, then it says it's enough to keep it inside. Don't publicly display it because it could be dangerous. If somebody sees your menorah, your Chanukah in the window, of course it could lead you to being in trouble. And as I said, that we've known way too many times in our history where that has been true. So every mitzvah in the Torah, every mitzvah in Halakha, has layers. It's got its very basic understanding, but it's also got its spiritual context. It's also got layers of deeper understanding, mystical understanding. What does the Chanukah represent? What did the Greeks try to, you know, the Assyrian Greeks, what did they try and stamp out? They tried to stamp out Torah. They didn't want us to connect to, a, to something which was a, a godly Torah. They said you can practice some of the main, the, you know, the, the rabbinic interpretation, but don't connect it to Torah. To Hashem, we don't want that. And so therefore they try to stamp out, of course, which is our main focus, which is our Torah. And so therefore, if they were trying to stamp out our Torah, then in a sense, what the Torah is telling us, what the Gemara is telling us, that at times when it's dangerous, you could possibly keep it inside, right? At times when your Torah is threatened, you, you might be able to, you know, hide it and disclose it, not necessarily have to walk around telling everybody I'm a Jew. Um, it's just interesting. There was a famous story of a, um, an, elderly, an elderly Russian lady, a Jewish Russian woman, who she was uh, talking to one of her friends, and her friend said, look, she gets very nervous when she walks to shul because she passes by this sort of this gang sitting on the steps over there, and they call her Jid. Jid in Russian means, you know, it's a derogatory term of a Jew. And her friend told her she's very scared. She doesn't go to shul because she's scared to walk through. And the other lady said, ah, on the contrary, when I walk past and they go, Jid, 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 I, I feel like it's a badge of honor. They're going, Jew, Jew, Jew. I'm like, yes, here I am. I'm the Jew walking through and I feel like they're greeting me. Of course, two different, two different ways you can interpret it. Now, for most of us, we'd be scared. She saw it as, yeah, here goes a Jew. And she was very proud of it. But when it's dangerous, says the Gemara, then, it, then you should, you're allowed to hide it. You're allowed to be scared. You're allowed to, you know, conceal it. Now, spiritually, what would that mean? are there times when there's spiritual danger right when a person might go into a situation into an environment which could corrupt them it might be and you know there's um uh times where you might come from a religious background let's say and there's been lots of debate about this over over the many different generations where you, where some parents try to keep their children very insular they don't want them being exposed to the world around them they say it's dangerous if we show them Facebook and TV and phones and mobile phones. And there's still a lot of communities today. You know, you, I'm sure many of you watch the unorthodox movie, you know, where it's a very sheltered community. Why? Because perhaps they're scared. They're scared that if they let them go, what's going to happen? The danger of the outside world could corrupt them. And so therefore, what it's saying over here, that if you are in trouble, if you don't have energy, if you are corrupted, then what good can you be? You know, it's like if God forbid somebody is drowning, you see somebody drowning, and if you don't know how to swim, if you jump in there to try and save the person, there's no benefit. Because if you're going to drown, then you're not going to be any use to anyone else. 
So there could be a theory to say that, you know what, if I'm going to compromise my own ability to swim, if I'm going to drown and I can't handle this water, then I'm not going to be effective in saving somebody else. So I might have to take a step back. This was Noah's philosophy. Noah understood this, the, way, the world in this way. He said, I've got to keep my family surrounded by the walls of my morality, the walls of the way I understand it. I can't go into the outside world. And of course, in his generation, there was a very dangerous outside world spiritually. People were depraved. People were immoral. And Noah said, if I start praying for them and start engaging with them and trying to influence them, what's going to happen? It's very likely that they'll influence me, which will be catastrophic. Because if I can't swim, then I'm going to drown as well. So this is what the Zohar meant when he said he was afraid of himself. So Noah was almost this isolated figure who had this cocoon of reality around him. But nonetheless, he walked with God. He said, in my home, we are walking with God. We're not going out to try and influence or get influenced by anybody else. That was the Noah way. Now ask yourself, are you a Noah person? Abraham was the complete antithesis of Noah. Abraham, on the, on the, on the complete opposite spectrum, his entire mission, his life mission, his calling in life was what? Was to influence the world around him. He was not scared. He said, I want to not only illuminate my own home, my mission is to illuminate the entire world. My mission is to go out and bring light and kindness and morality to the world around me. And you see what he did. Him and Sarah, his wife, had a tent in the middle of the desert. And when people came to their tent, he encouraged them, he inspired them. He wanted visitors. He wanted the outside world who was coming past to see his way of life, to be inspired by his way of life. He wasn't hiding from the rest of the world. Right? And that's what Hashem did. I mean, he said that he made so many converts that came to his home. And that's what Avram was, that was his, that, I guess that was his forte, that was his spiritual ability to do that. And so Avraham's calling was, was to call people, in a sense, to go out there. It was like almost, he was the founder of this concept of spreading ethical monotheism, right? The humanity, it was, it was, was this new integrated way of, of, of inspiring the world around him. Now, of course, he wasn't the first person to connect to Hashem. A lot of people feel that, no, that Avram was the first person to recognize Hashem. It's not true. If you go, there's people, that, even the Torah mentioned people like Hanoch and Mesoshelach, Methuselah. These were men of great, deep holiness. Even Shem. It said that Shem set up a whole yeshiva. So these were people way before Avram. What was the difference? Avram said, I want to spread this message outwards. The rest of them prior to Avraham were going in the, in the, in the, in the trajectory of a Noach. We found the truth, but we're going to keep it for ourselves. Because we, if, once, we, once we walk out the door, once we, it's like the virus i mean i've you know it's virus taught us a lot you know if i close my door if i isolate from the rest of the world then i'm safe but in a sense not was like a was like a quarantine person he's like i don't want to catch the virus from people around me so what am i going to do i'm going to stay inside it's the safest place to be avram was no yes there's a virus out there but i'm going to go find a vaccine avram went out there to try and test people try and find ways to cure people if you like this was the difference so yaakov if you go i mean later on jacob it just says they're speaking about that even, um, uh, you know, there were yeshivas set up. Um, but what were the yeshivas? What, were they, what, what type of yeshivas were they? They were like little shtiblach. They were like little insular shtiblach. You know, you have all these little different corner shuls in, in town. It's all about them. It wasn't about someone else. Avraham was the first person to say, you know what? It's dangerous outside, but where am I putting my menorah? I'm going go to I'm go to the footpath, and I'm going to put it there, right there on the footpath. I'm not scared. 
I want to spread the message of light. Now, you could say that sometimes an Avram approach is a bit mishugana, right? If it is dangerous out there. But Avram wasn't concerned about that. He said, I'm going to, in a sense, if you could put into modern context, there had never been a press conference before. Avram said, I'm going to call Channel 7, I'm going to call Channel 9, I'm going to call the international news, come around, I'm spreading the message of Hanukkah. Right? That was Avram's modus operandi. He was so sure of his product, if you like, that he would go around giving speeches, going around inspiring people. He wanted to make it available to every single person. Right? And so therefore, when he started to spread the word, all of a sudden, what happens? It's like social media today. You know, if I send one message, hopefully it goes viral. That's what Avram wanted. He wanted the world to start talking about God. He wanted the world to start talking about morality. He wanted the world to start talking about belief in a monotheist, in a monotheism. Whereas Mark said, I see the truth. I understand the truth. I'm even communicating with God, but I'm keeping it internal. Where does the story of Judaism begin? Does it begin with Noah or does it begin with Avraham? And of course, we all know the answer that it begins with Avraham begins with the approach of Avramavim, right? In the calling and making an impact on another person's life, that's what the world, that's what Hashem wants from us. So Shem, he, as we said, was educated by his father. And so therefore, what did he want to call this Yerushalayim? What did he want to call this holy city, right? He wanted to call it Shalem. What does Shalem mean? Shalem means it's complete or full. It means, you know, when we speak about Shalom Bayit, we want to have peace in the home it means an internal a very personalized peace we want to have shalom we want to have this divine energy of shalom in, inside of us whereas avram chose the word it will be seen it will be publicized it will be known it will be spread outside that's what i want to call the city i want the city that we all eat shawam and falafel in to be the city that spreads godliness to be the city that spreads morality to be the city that inspires the world that's what i want said avram I don't want it to just be a city for itself, right? I don't want it to just be a city of angels where it's just these, you know, these robots walking around and they're only happy with themselves. They don't care about what's happening around them. Whereas Noah, as I said, was worried about himself. Avram was worried about everybody else. Very different approach. Now, what does Hashem say? Do I discourage or do I exclude Noah's vision? Noah's way? No. But what does he name the city? Who gave the name first? Who came first in history? It was Shem. So really the name of, this, of the map should be Shalom Yeru. That would have been a bit of a tongue twister. That's what it was called. right? And we're not going to ask all the maps to rename it. But that's what it should have been. It should have been Shalom Yeru. But Hashem names it Yerushalem. Why? Why do we call it Yerushalem? Because Hashem was teaching us something profound. When we say that name, remember I said to you that the name contains a very powerful description of the essence of anything? So just by saying the name, in a sense, you're saying, you're flying the flag of what it means to be a Yid. That Yerushalem means, at first I'm going to be doing what? My real mission is not just to think about myself. My real mission is to try and help another person. So try and spread godliness and morality and kindness around. But at the same time, don't exclude Shalom. You need to work on yourself. We, we mustn't discredit everything about Noah. Remember, Rashi still said he was a tzaddik. What was he a tzaddik? He understood that you've still got to inspire yourself. Because at the same time as our, our modus operandi is to inspire the world around us, you still need the Shalom part at times. You know, I think about it myself. You know, as a rabbi, you want to teach and educate and you want to inspire people. 
I find the most effective time that you are in your life is when you yourself are inspired. If you are deflated, if you are disinterested, if you give a shiur and you're disinterested, I can assure you that everybody listening will be disinterested. Hopefully, I'm not disinterested now. Hopefully, you see that I, I'm passionate about this message. So hopefully, you feel that, that energy. But if, you, if you're walking around with not feeling shalem, and I can assure you, and I'm sure you've had the same experience, when I've been, there's been times where I haven't necessarily felt motivated or going through something you know, in my life, and then you're giving, you try to talk to people, you try to meet with people. You know, it could be at a wedding. You know, I try and really be inspired for each couple. I try and really get in the psyche that I want to be with this couple in their energy, in their simcha. And couples feel that. They see this. This is a, this, The rabbi actually is, is feeling our simcha. If you come in and you're like, okay, you know, and we drink the wine, we're going to do the, you know, give her the ring, give her the, and, you know, you're not going to be inspiring anybody. So you need the aspect of shalem. You need that aspect of Noah, which says, yes, there has to be times where you need a cocoon. And how does that work practically? I think, and this is for, you know, put it aside from the Jewish context. You can use this in any model. But if you think about, you know, your day, you know, the coronavirus, I think, has taught us so much about life. But, you know, you need these cocoons in your day. You need these cocoons in your mind to keep you motivated, to keep you feeling fresh. You need times that you need to just take a break. You need times you just need to take time out to recharge your own batteries. It's like, imagine, you know, uh, ambulance workers who are rushing to go to an emergency and they see that the petrol is about to be empty. And the person driving says, look, let's get petrol, then we'll go. And the other one says, no, we don't need petrol. We've got to get to the emergency. We've got to keep going. Now, of course, you and I understand that if you listen to the, to the driver and you go fill up petrol quickly, you'll get to your destination. But if you act like the other person says, no, we've got to keep going, we've got to keep going when there's no petrol in the ambulance. I've got bad news for you that whilst you might feel you're going to get the quicker, you're going to run out of juice and you won't get there at all. That's the metaphor of life. That's the difference between Avraham and Noah. You know, of course, Avraham had that ability wanting to, to rush out, which was amazing, whereas Noah wanted to be petrol inside. So you need the combination of both. You need Yerushalem, but Yerushalem comes first. You've got to remember, why is it that I need to be inspired? That's the difference. Why do I need to be inspired? Why do I need to be whole? It's not a self, the, the, the end product is not that I'm selfishly feeling complete now. If that's the end product, then you've missed the message of Judaism. If that's the end product, that ah, I'm just going to be inspired for my own self and my own family, and that's enough, then all you've done is being a noach person. But if your shalem is there for the purpose of being Yerah'eh, that I want to try and help another person, then, then, you've, then you've accomplished what the city of Jerusalem stands for. So each time you go into the city of Yerushalayim, each time you hear that name, and we celebrate you know, the giving back of Yerushalayim in 1967, you know, on Friday, a lot of people celebrate Yerushalayim. You say, what are you celebrating? What, what are you celebrating? Oh, because we can walk through the streets. That's a very, that's a very superficial level. Remember I said, it's a very superficial level of enjoyment, of celebration, of, of understanding the miracle of this place. Right? As I said, you can buy a shawarma in Caulfield. Right? It might not be as good as the ones in Jerusalem, but if that's your whole connection to Yerushalayim, that you can get a great shawarma, a great falafel. But if you walk through the streets and you say, here are my ancestors stood. Here's where Avram Avinu came to. This is where the Beis Amitah stood. This is where the message of Judaism starts and continues, that we have to spread our light to others. But of course, we have to have light internally. But it's not for the for the goal of just having that light. Then, only then are we accomplishing the mission. So we'll conclude with a, a very interesting thing. There's a very um, I saw this from a, another rabbi when I listened to the shir a few years ago. 
there's a very beautiful um, uh, introduction. Uh, there's uh, one of the one of the books of Shulchan Aruch. Called, it's called Yoredeya, and there's a beautiful introduction that was written by the chief rabbi of Pressburg in the late 1800s. His name was Moshe Sofer, and um, he he gives an introduction um, over there. His son gives an introduction, and he starts to explain and discuss this particular aspect. And he says that Avram Avinu, um, in and, uh, and and he compared the Chassam Sofer with the very, the very famous Chassam Sofer. He he, he he compared it to him and he said that um, he needs to be the person like Avram Avinu, that what? That his objective was to inspire others. But if the objective was simply to be holy, he writes, and listen to the words, if the objective was simply to be holy, then Hashem would have had millions of angels who could shout out Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Hashem didn't need that. Hashem wanted us to come out here and to scream Kadosh to others around us. And the same thing was the Chofetz Chaim. I'm sure many of you have heard teaching of the Chofetz Chaim. Um, he also expresses the very same idea why it was Shem and Noah who were not the first Jews, why Avraham? And he writes, he says, because they served Hashem for who? For themselves. They served Hashem for themselves. And the interesting thing is it's such a fine line because if you saw Shem and Noah, you would say, there walks righteous people. There walked Sadiqim. Right? You, you, it's such a fine line, but it's it's just so internal. It's just so it's interesting because it's a holy selfishness almost. It's like I only want it for me. Can you imagine? And I'll, I'll put it in the context. Can you imagine you found the cure, the vaccine for coronavirus? And what do you do? You say, I'm going to take it to my family. I'm going to give everybody in my family, and that's it. How selfish would that be? You say to the person, one second, you found this, this, you found this cure, you found something so powerful for everybody. And all you're doing is using it for your own home. Now, if you had to analyze, say, look. It's me. I'm healthy. I'm giving it to my children. It's very noble. I've made my children healthy. I've made my, you know, even if I give it to my parents and my siblings, wonderful. But how, who over here intellectually honest would say that that's the right thing to do? In a sense, if we could really understand the beauty of Yiddishkeit, the power of the message of Torah, it's like saying we're keeping it to ourselves. That's an analogy, and it's a very powerful analogy, I think. And so, in a sense, you know, I, I've, I've obviously been inspired uh, through my childhood by, and of course, um, I was only a baby um, when he was really in his, in his heyday. But, you know, obviously, the Lubavitcher River passed away uh, over 20 years ago. But a lot of people connect to the message that the Lubavitcher River wanted. That was to send Jews everywhere, to send, you know, to send Chabad House Shluchim all over the world. Why? Why not stay in New York? Of course, now you wouldn't want to stay in New York because it's a bit dangerous. But back then, you know, let's stay in New York. There's, there's kosher restaurants, there's delis, there's schools. Why well, send this, this, this guy who's just barely had an education and send him out to go in the middle of nowhere? Because I think the Rebbe understood in a very similar light to what Avram understood. Or the, or the Rebbe was inspired by what Avram taught. He understood the Yeru in the Yerushalayim. Right? Because, of course, he wanted all his emissaries to still be inspired themselves, to still learn and to still be, you know, recharged. Because, as I said, if you're not recharged, then... Of course, you're not going to be of any help. And so in conclusion, I'll just say one, one, one line. I think this will sum it all up. If it's cold outside, right? if it's cold outside, you have two choices. What are your two choices? The first choice is that you can put on a fur coat. It'll keep you beautifully warm. It'll be wonderful. Well, not a real fur, okay? Because we don't want to kill animals for coats. But a, 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 a beautiful warm, warm Kathmandu jacket. That's choice number one. What's choice number two? You can light a fire. First choice will keep you warm. Second choice will keep everybody around you warm. And that was the difference between Noach and Avram. Noach put on a beautiful coat. 
He was warm. He took care of himself. He was looking after himself. It was beautiful. Avram said, no, it's cold out there. I'm going to light the fire to keep every single person that's around me warm. And so please, God, in, in uh, of course, uh, going back to our dedication to 